steps leading up to the building. There were hundreds of civilians, most of them blue-collar workers, a lot of them farmers, but, but tonight they were militia. A lot of them had uh, taken their tools for shaping the dirt and they reshaped them, the, the pitchforks and the hoes and the axes into weapons of war. And one look at this ragtag militia and you knew that this wasn't a mere mob, that this was an organized insurrection. And they were wholly dedicated to what they were about to do. You, you would hear deep-throated cries of for God and for country as they stormed the gate and as the crowd moved uh, toward the gate and, and pushed on it and, and fought uh, against it and you could hear them creaking and groaning and finally they slammed open and you heard iron clashing on stone and they scaled the walls and they looked for ways into the building through archways and windows and they made their way into the hallways, into the courts and, and, and they were overturning and purging all, uh, all of the traces of the oppression and the defilement that the foreign Greek rulers had mercilessly pressed them down with. And this was no fairy tale. The year was uh, 164 BC and it was winter. And for the four years leading up to this watershed moment in Israel's history, the Greek tyrant Antiochus Epiphanes had rolled in with his armies to snuff out in Jerusalem every trace of Jewish culture and religion. He closed the doors on their synagogues and he put to death people who were hiding the scrolls of Hebrew scriptures in their homes. He even, get this, he even publicly hung mothers who dared to have their eight-year-old sons circumcised according to the Torah. The, the oppression was dark, it was, it was heavy and, and there was talk of insurrection but the tipping point finally came when Antiochus Epiphanes came into the temple, into the holiest space in Hebrew culture, in Hebrew religion and he butchered swine on the altar and let its blood run down in worship of his own demonic idols and it was at that point that Judas Maccabees the, one of the sons of, uh, of a loyal and proud Jewish family, the Maccabean family, led what we now know as the Maccabean Revolt that you can read about in the book of First Maccabees. And then on the 25th of December, uh, the Hebrew month Chislev, they purified and, and rededicated the temple back to God so that God could once again have a place to rest among his people. Why am I telling you this? Welcome, by the way, to the teaching portion of our service. Why am I telling you all this? Well, because this moment in political and military upheaval, this clash of these world narratives, this is the backdrop for the conversation that Jesus is about to have with his Jewish antagonist in John chapter 10, verse 22. So you back up the camera and you speed up the progression of time and you fast forward about 200 years from 164 BC to around 30 AD and you zoom back in. The power of the Greeks has faded into memory and a new power has arisen. It's the power of the empire of Rome far greater uh, in terms of its military weight uh, than, than Greece ever was. 
Uh, and, and now you slow the tape down and you zoom in on Jesus in John chapter 10, verse 22, and we read these words. Then came the festival of dedication, the festival that was celebrating and remembering the, the insurrection and the cleansing and the rededication of the temple that we had just described. It was a festival of dedication in Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. So he's at the temple on the day that, that the temple was rededicated almost 200 years before and there's a celebration as people are remembering the insurrection. They're remembering this moment of purification, renewal, restoration of their temple and they're huddled in the cold of the winter underneath the massive structure of Solomon's colonnade in the temple. Politics and leadership and an insurrection was on everybody's mind. Everyone's thinking about the kind of leadership that they desperately needed in this moment with Rome looming over them. And really, it's, it's quite similar to where we are today. There, there truly is nothing new under uh, the sun. We've been through what a lot of us thought we'd never see. We've, we've been through our own insurrection. And, and right now, a lot of us are longing for true, good, wise leadership. And what we see in John chapter 10 is that in the midst of political tension, in the midst of secret militias, in, in the midst of talks of insurrection uh, and puppet politicians, that the leadership of Jesus is exactly what we need. And we have all sorts of questions. We have questions like, why is it why is it that the louder and more Messiah-like our own rulers and politicians and kings become, the less we seem to trust them? Why is it that the more we're pushed to tribalism and, and social media echo chambers and partisanship, the more we're pushed toward all that, the more we long for shalom, the kind of peace that's promised in scripture under the leadership of Jesus? Or another way to ask this is, why do people who come to Jesus find his leadership so refreshing? And as I've been reading and studying this text, I, I think I find at least three reasons. And the first one is that he's for all people. Jesus is for all people. Look at verse 24 with me. Jesus is walking in the temple the Jews who were there gathered around him. So this is Pharisees, these are zealots, these are poor people, rich people. They all gather around him and they say, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my father's name testify about me. So they all look at Jesus and they ask him, are you the Messiah? Which means, are you the chosen leader? Are you God's man? And they expect a straight answer, but they don't get one. Why? Is Jesus walking on eggshells? You know, is he being politically correct, trying not to offend someone? Well, no. The reason he doesn't give a straight answer is because it's not a straight question. See, they're boxing him into a corner and he doesn't want to go in that corner. He's not going to go in that corner. And maybe you know what this is like. You know, one of the worst questions I get asked is people walk up and they're like, so um, did you get uh, my text? <laughs> and 
I never know what to say. You know, have you ever had that? You, you just feel boxed in. You did get the text, right? But you were just busy and, and, you know, you didn't read it and then you forgot about it. And then they see you and they're like, did you get my text? Well, if you say no, you're a liar. If you say yes, but you don't know what they're about to talk tell you about, then you're a jerk, right? So which is it? Are you a liar or a jerk? And it's not a straight question. It's a crooked question. And the thing about crooked questions is they always carry assumptions. And the assumption in the text question is, I assume that when I send you a text, you have nothing better going on, like like nothing more important going on in your life than my text. And of course, you're going to look at it if you see it. But that's an assumption, And so when they ask Jesus, are you the Messiah or not? It's a crooked question. If he says no, then he and John the Baptist are liars because they both explicitly in John's gospel said yes, he is the Messiah. But if he answers yes, then suddenly out of the woodwork is going to come secret militia who have been training in secret and stockpiling weapons in secret. They're going to rally around him in an instant to overthrow the Roman government. And Jesus isn't after a war with Rome. Crooked questions always carry assumptions. So what's the assumption in this question? The assumption is that Messiah means our Messiah. Like, like, are you the Messiah or not means, are you the Jewish Messiah or not? Are you the Messiah for our people? Are you here to be the new Judas Maccabee to lead an insurrection against Rome? And I love, I love Jesus. I love his patience for our questions. Even our misinformed and naive and crooked questions. And he says, well, he doesn't say yes, but he implies yes. He is the Messiah, but he's not the Jewish Messiah. He's the Messiah for all people. He is for all people. And the Pharisees should have known that because it's literally everywhere in the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, including the very foundational promises to their forefather, Abraham. Check this out in Genesis 12, uh, verse 3. This is God. Uh, giving shape. This is like a covenant, foundational covenant document for Abraham and his family, the Hebrews. He says, I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. So that's for the Jewish people. But then he says, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. He's for all people. Uh, Again, in Psalm 67, verses one and two, may God be gracious to us, that's the Jewish people saying this, and bless us and make his face shine on us so that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. Why do people who come to Jesus find his leadership so refreshing? Because he is for all people. He's for all people. Jesus is the only true world leader. And our own language betrays us as we talk about world leaders because what are we talking about? Like if you were to, you know, drive to New York and go to the UN and sit down with all the world leaders, what you're, you're sitting down with people who don't literally lead the world. They just lead particular people and they represent particular interests in the world, right? But Jesus says, I'm, I'm the true world leader. I'm here for all people. And Jesus is not going to answer the Pharisees' question because it's boxing him into a category that that they're making up about God. 
Jesus is saying, I'm not just for one nation or one interest group. I'm here to bring blessing and flourishing and justice and truth and forgiveness everywhere there are people because I love all people. And all people means your people. It means your family. It means the ones that you are connected to where you know what they're crying out for. God hears them because he's for all people. All people also means those people. It means those people that some of us would rather not include in in the people that, that God loves and forgives and accepts. He's for all people. And then he goes on in verse 26, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. Why do people come to, who come to Jesus find his leadership so refreshing? Number one, because he's for all people. Number two, because he leads like a shepherd. He leads like a shepherd, which sets him apart from any other leader that you and I have ever known because most leaders, they lead like ranchers. They lead, uh, they, they lead uh, just masses of people without knowing them individually, but Jesus says, I know my sheep. Jesus knows you. That's part of what it means that he leads like a shepherd. He knows you. There's no leader in the world who's ever known his followers like Jesus knows his sheep. There's no leader in the world that has had the capacity to know his followers like Jesus knows his sheep. A politician might say, I get my people. I get, I get my voting blocks and they'll divvy us up into demographics like evangelical and liberal or black or white or women or men or young or old or Hispanic or LGBTQ affirming or non-affirming, but they don't know you. They don't know your story. They don't know what keeps you up at night. They don't know your vulnerabilities and your dreams And Jesus says, I know my sheep. I know your name. I know your story. And I have a vision for you, a future for you that you cannot possibly imagine. People find Jesus' leadership so refreshing because it's personal. Because he leads like a shepherd. He's for all people. He leads like a shepherd. But then what he says next is so radical that it incites a mob. Uh, in, in verse 30, we, we begin to, to realize that one of the other reasons people who come to Jesus find his leadership so refreshing is that it's because he brings heaven home. He brings heaven home. In verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one. Now this is an astounding statement. So much so it incites a mob. Verse 31, again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him, believing that they were defending God against someone who was blaspheming him, taking credit for God's stuff. But Jesus said to them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? And and they say, we're not stoning you for any good work, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Notice there's another assumption here. The first assumption 
was that if Jesus was God's chosen leader, that he would be a chosen leader for them and for their people. Now, they're assuming that Jesus is a mere man. They have no category for God-man, for God with us, Emmanuel. See, in, in their minds, the, the, the way their, their like, uh, mental furniture works is that heaven is where God is and home is where we are. And the only place to reach God, the God of heaven, is at the temple. But then Jesus opens up the Bible with them to Psalm 82 verse 6. He quotes it to them to show them that they've been missing something really, really important. Look in verse 34 with me. Jesus answered, is it not written in your law? I have said, this this is a quote, this is Jesus quoting from Psalm 82. I have said you are gods, end of the quote. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and, by the way, scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? Are you lost? Yeah, I don't feel bad. Uh, this, this is like a total mind melter for me too. And I have like a master's degree in this. I've mastered nothing. So uh, there's no way that we're gonna fully like catch up uh, and wrap our minds around the Bible jujitsu that Jesus is doing here. But hopefully I can just get the point across. And it's actually very simple. Jesus is saying, look here, look in your Bible that you claim to take very, very seriously. Uh, like, like look, let's look at this. Um, here's just one example of someone who is not God with a capital G who is called God with a lowercase g. Okay? So if they're called God with a lowercase g, how much more should the Messiah who was set apart by God and sent into the world, how much more should he become, be called God? You still lost? It's okay. It's not a big deal. The bottom line is that the Pharisees who believed in the Bible, but when it came to actually reading and applying it, they were letting their personal preconceived ideas shape scripture instead of letting scripture shape their ideas. That's the point that Jesus is making. And Jesus says scripture can't be set aside, which translated directly from the Greek would be something like, you can't play fast and loose with scripture. You can't ignore parts that are hard to understand or parts that are inconvenient to you and what you want to do. It, because when it comes to reading and applying the Bible, every word matters. And Jesus is saying to these Pharisees, you've been missing the fact that in the very words of scripture, there is a theological category of Emmanuel, God with us, God among us, heaven coming home. And the Pharisees were not connecting with this very fundamental thing about God that's been there since the very beginning because they weren't reading the words of scripture that God's mission is to bring heaven home. That's his mission. That's what Jesus is after. He's bringing heaven home. He's bringing heaven here right now to your home, to my home, to our nation to our neighborhoods. And Jesus says the Father 
has set me apart. So we're reading this in English and we're not catching the double meaning in, in the Greek. Set apart is the same word for uh, earlier, the, the feast of dedication. The Greek word um, there is en, en, enkenia in Greek and it's built on the root word kanos, which literally means new or fresh. And, and like what, uh, the idea of something being dedicated or new or fresh, or an, another way of saying it is being made holy, is like you change the sheets, right? After a guest comes to your house. You know, you don't want anything on their body, you know, left on the bed when someone else sleeps in the bed. You change them, you put something fresh and new uh, on top. You're getting it ready for someone else to use it. And what Jesus is saying here is you're celebrating the day that you dedicated this temple to God, thinking that in doing so, you're making a pl- this place to be a little more like heaven, just enough like heaven that, that God can come here and rest. But Jesus says, I am bringing heaven home. The Father has dedicated me to be the holy place where with you and among you right now. You go to the temple thinking that you can be made new and fresh and clean and forgiven, but Jesus says, I am your fresh start. I am your new beginning. And then Jesus says, don't, don't take my word for it. My work speaks for itself. Look in verse 37. He says, do not believe me unless I do the works of my father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand. The father is in me and I am in the father. Why do we find the leadership of Jesus so refreshing? Because he's bringing heaven home. He's bringing it here right now to your home, to my home. And we think that Jesus came to get us to believe certain things about God so that we can be acceptable to him. A lot of us, we keep falling in this rut of thinking that Jesus came to model a certain way of living so that we can be nice to each other and, and usher in you know, some kind of utopian future based on our efforts But Jesus is saying, no, the reality is that I'm inviting you into into a new beginning. A new beginning founded on me, founded on the presence of the Holy God, laid out for you in sacrificial love on the cross so that you can be made new and that will be the beginning, the fresh start, the restoration of, of a new way of life, heaven's way of life, a way of living that makes our homes and our hearts and our neighborhoods and our families and our cities and our nation more and more like heaven every day. He's bringing heaven home. You know, maybe, maybe you're in a place, you're just not connecting with this right now and, and you're just, You know, you've got a lot of questions about Jesus and I'm just so glad that you're watching this. Maybe you were raised in a Christian home and you've been taught about him and and you're going, yeah, I don't know about all this. And Jesus is saying, look, I'm not asking you just to take my word for it. Look at my work. Look at the effect that I have in the world. Look at what I've done. Look at what people who have dedicated themselves and their lives to following me. Look at what they've done in my name and because of my teaching and under my influence. Consider, consider for just a moment the fact that healthcare as we know it 
social justice as we know it, the abolition of the open slave trade as we know it, modern science even as we know it, they were all rooted in a Christ-centered worldview. That's not saying that every Christian is perfect or every pastor is perfect or the church has it all together. God knows we have our problems, but we have the Holy Spirit and the word to guide us and continue to shape us. But Jesus says, look at my work in the world. It speaks for itself. Of course, not everyone's gonna buy into this. In verse 39 of John chapter 10, we read that again, they tried to seize him, Jesus, but he escaped their grasp. Not everybody finds Jesus' leadership refreshing. A lot of people find it threatening. He, he confronts our assumptions. He, he, he messes with our categories. And it's just too much for a lot of us. But then we see what it does for the people who actually come to him. In verse 40, it says Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. He's talking about John chapters one and two, where this whole journey with Jesus started. And it says there he stayed and many people came to him and they said though John never performed a sign, John the Baptist, all that John said about this man was true that he is the Messiah, he is the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world. And it says in that place, many believed in Jesus, which is another way of saying many started following the leadership of Jesus. And this is so important because what are we tempted to do when the political tension is high? When, when there's, there, there's blaming happening on, on both sides, when everyone's looking for good and true and right leadership and there's misinformation and conspiracy theories and talk of insurrection, well, most of us stay in that place. We stay in the hub and we get sucked into the 24-hour news cycle and the social media echo chambers, but Jesus is somewhere else. He left. He goes to the place where it all started. He leaves the temple, the crowds, the antagonism, and he goes back to that space and anyone who comes to him will discover the refreshing leadership of Jesus. The real Jesus, the shepherd, God's son, the Messiah. And that's where they found peace. So just three questions very quickly before we wrap up. What's stopping you? What's stopping you right now from experiencing the leadership of Jesus in this moment? And I think there are just three things um, stopping us from experiencing this refreshing, life-giving leadership of Jesus. One that we see in the text is some of us have a listening problem. A listening problem. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice and they follow me. Let me just ask you, do you feel like you're missing out if you don't keep scrolling? Like, if there, you know the screen time reports that tell you how much time you've been staring at your phone or your iPad or whatever? If there was a screen time, a screen time report of the time that you spend listening to, reading, watching, scrolling through, subscribing to podcasts, doom scrolling, you know, in the social media echo chamber, staying attached to the 24-hour news cycle, 
if there was a report of that time compared to the report of the time that you just spent sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to his voice in scripture, what would that report tell you? See, the scary thing and the danger for anyone who calls themselves a Christian, which is just say that they call themselves someone who follows Christ, is to think that we're following Jesus when we're not, when we're actually following all the other voices. So are you listening to Jesus? Do you know his voice from the thousands of other voices that are vying for your attention? So some of us have a listening problem. Maybe that's you. Some of us have a reading problem. I'm not talking about, you know, a diagnosed kind of clinical reading problem. Lots of us have those. And thank God we live in a day and age where there's a lot of good resources and audiobooks and things like that. But some of us have a reading problem, which is not just reading, but, but reading and applying. That's what the Pharisees had. They, they knew the Bible so well, but they got Jesus so wrong. And like, because alongside the Bible, they had miles and miles of scrolls of their own tradition. They had scrolls with made-up rules about who was really a follower of God and who wasn't. They had scrolls filled with political solutions to spiritual problems. And, and do you know how to avoid this mistake? Well, it's really simple. When you read the word of scripture, when, which is to also say when you listen to or when you talk about or, or, or when you're listening to a sermon or, or whatever, Jesus is asking you, are you reading the words? Are you reading the words? Not just the words that fit into and confirm our pre-existing categories or the words that make sense to us without us having to really put any effort into figuring them out. Are you reading the words? Like Jesus quoted Psalm 82 and it said God's. Jesus is like to the Pharisees, did you notice it says God's? Or did you just ignore that because it doesn't fit into your categories? And just super practically, I would just say, you know, don't post that verse until you've read the chapter. Like understand the words of God because if we don't know God's words, we don't really know God. Number three, some of us have a listening problem. Some of us have a reading problem. Some of us have a dedication problem. And, and maybe what you're thinking is, oh, Ryan thinks I, I'm not dedicated enough to reading the Bible or to being a Christian or going to church or whatever. And that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying some of us are, are like the Pharisees. You know, we're celebrating how they, uh, how they had dedicated themselves, their temple, their nation back to God. And we can do that. We can really just focus so much on, on our own dedication to him, our, the dedication of our nation, the dedication of our policies, of our, of our behavior or whatever to God when God the whole time was trying to get them and us to realize that first we had to come to terms with the fact that he has dedicated himself to us sacrificially, lovingly, right there with us. And like the Pharisees, we can fall into this rut of thinking that our acceptance by God is contingent on our personal holiness. Like if, if I could just kick this habit, I would be acceptable to God. If I could just dedicate my behavior enough, then, then I would be acceptable to God. Others of us think that, uh, that it's our national holiness. Like if we could just pass this policy or elect this politician, if we could just get ourselves and our nation in line 
and our country in line, then God would finally smile on us and everything will be all right. And I'm, I'm all for personal and national dedication to God. Don't get me wrong, but the problem is we can't do it. We can't do it. We've been trying forever. We're never gonna be able to make heaven on earth because heaven isn't from here. It's from God. And before we can dedicate our own hearts, our own homes and our families and our nations to God, we have to first come to Jesus who's dedicated himself to us, sent into the world by the Father to do his work. So do you wanna, you wanna trust him? You wanna follow Jesus? You wanna be refreshed by his leadership? Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful that in, in a world where we are reeling, we're, we're dizzy, we're tired, um, we're frustrated with the back and forth, um, with the roller coaster, with the politics. God, we're, we're so grateful that in, in this moment, right where we are right now, that we can come to you and be strengthened. We, we can be refreshed by your leadership. We could be made new. And God, for all of my friends who are tired right now, they're, they're disillusioned. They're, they're not even sure of the whole concept of leadership. Lord, I pray that you would show yourself as you are to them. Holy Spirit, draw us to Jesus. Change us from the inside out. We need you. We need you in our homes. We need you in our nation. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.